Welcome back to the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. I'm Thomas Horrocks. And I'm Nick Quint. And it's been a little while since our last podcast, and I think one or two things may have happened since then. I mean, I don't know about you, Thomas, but it's been pretty quiet here. (laughs) Oh, that might be the understatement of the year. Um, There's been a lot going on between our now and our last recording. Uh, The biggest event in the news, obviously, has been the worldwide outbreak of COVID-19 and all of the craziness surrounding that. Uh, But that's not the biggest event in the lives of the Synergists. Uh, Your whole world changed on March 14th. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's uh, on March 14th at 3.48 a.m. My wife gave birth to our son, Nolan Michael. And so he's officially, I'm, I don't know what the phrase is, I'm a pie daddy and he's a pie baby. So <laughs> three fourteen in 2020. So yeah, we, uh, I am now officially a dad. Well, congratulations. Uh, how does it feel? Uh, exhausting. Yes. I've yes. noticed uh, a, a giant increase in baby pictures on your social media feeds. It uh, warms my heart. Yes, it's a, there's so many photos to be taken, and he's he's got a lot of personality. I'm kind of, I don't know about uh, you with your kiddos, but it takes you know probably a couple of days once they get back home to kind of get used to being in a new spot, obviously, and kind of get sensory their senses kind of a little under control. But his personality is really, really beginning to come out, and it's really kind of cute. I mean, he reminds me a little bit of me and a little bit of Allison, but he's 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 very entertaining when he's not pooping himself dry and kicking and kicking his diaper off and spreading it all over the place. <laughs> uh, the joys of parenthood. The, the, the more poop than you know what to deal with. The more poop than I ever thought I would need. I mean, and I worked in a movie theater and I cleaned bathrooms <laughs> and I, nothing like seminary didn't train me to be a dad. So I think it's just a failure on seminary's part. Uh, and is Allison healthy and doing well? She is recovering nicely. It's a little slow, but she's by God's grace doing quite well. It's it's been a it's been a tough go the past couple of weeks, but we're uh, we're kind of through the the veil of darkness, as they say. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Certainly uh, thankful for you both, and congratulations. It's a it's a huge milestone. It really does uh, change everything, doesn't it? It really does. I I don't know about you, but your sleep schedule instantly changes to where you are. I don't know about you. You're overjoyed if you get four hours of sleep a night, yep. uh, and that's not concur- that's not a consecutive four hours. That is a total, probably split up over two to three, you know, waking periods. Uh, yeah, it's it's just one of those. I'm happy if I get four hours of sleep. Yes, yes, sleep is a big thing that changes. You're just your whole world. You start to think about things in, in all sorts of different ways now that you've got a, a little one that you're responsible for. I mean, it, uh, a lot of responsibility, a lot of joy. Yeah, it, it's given me a whole new appreciation for single parents, specifically uh, single moms, um, simply because, I mean, the idea of having to take care of one kid, uh, and you're working from home, obviously, during COVID and stuff, and it's one of those, I have just a massive new respect. I mean, obviously, I had a lot of respect for folks like that, you know, single parents, but it's just having to take care of him with my wife, you know, my wife's working as well. And so, you know, I take him for a few hours and at the end of it, I'm like, you know what? I, I, I don't know how anyone can do this for 24 seven, especially in an age where you got to pay for childcare and stuff. And that's of course an extra financial burden on a lot of people. And it was just one of those. I'm like, I don't know how, I don't know if I could do that as a single parent. And so kudos to our, our single parents out there that listen and everywhere. And that's, I mean, I don't know how else to say, but cheers to you. Like you, you guys, y'all are superheroes. 
Yes, absolutely. I remember there's been just a few times when um, I've had to, you know, I've taken the kids on my own for, you know, a weekend or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. while, while Gabrielle goes off and does something. And, and even for a weekend, right, you start to think about people who do this um, regularly on their own for a long time. And it just, I just, I marvel at uh, single parents who are able to maintain sanity and keep their kids alive. And then, you know, similarly, my wife, when I'm gone for military things and she'll watch the kids, same thing. It's just, um, so yes, hats off, props, major props to mm-hmm. uh, all of the single parents out there who are raising children. It's a massive responsibility um, and and a great joy. Yes, I amen to that. I know it's not the, uh, the topic of our episode today, but uh, having kids definitely makes me, uh, it just opens up a whole new line of thinking in terms of uh, theology because you know Jesus tells us that God is um, a heavenly a heavenly parent right God thinks of right. us as children um, and I when I think of how much I love my children um, you know and, and how deep and unconditional that love is you know, I think it just gives us a glimpse into uh, what it means when you know when the scripture says that God loves us uh, we get a, we get to taste that a little bit more. Yeah, it's one of God's, I mean, little gracelets, right? Got one of little manifestations of God's gracefulness to us. And so, uh, at least in, in some way, I mean, there's obviously millions of ways God is gracious and can manifest that grace and kindness, of course. And you don't have to be, you know, a parent to experience that, of course. But Certainly. it's just a little element of it that just gives gives it a whole new meaning. It's, it's hard to read the Bible and not come across those texts where, you know, you must be like a little child to do X. And you're kind of just stopping, you're holding your kid in your arms and you're just like, well, that's a lot more hitting that's a lot more personal than i was expecting reading the bible Um, and that's not a a slap at anything it's just you know it's just sometimes the bible becomes a little more personal than we might like and that's in a good way i think in many ways yes absolutely well if we hear the the screams of a little one in the background uh we'll we'll know what's going on we're very very excited for you and allison as you begin this new journey thank you yes uh, so we're actually going to be diving into a new topic for the next few episodes. Uh, we're still going to be doing our uh, Christian uh, theology, our Christ-centered theology project, uh, but we're going to focus in a little bit more closely uh, as we start looking specifically at the doctrine of the atonement, um, which is a huge, huge topic uh, yeah. for the, our listeners who've done any reading or studying or discussing on the topic of the atonement. It's a, it's a massive thing, so we're going to be spending several different episodes on it. Um, but like we usually do, perhaps we should start with something most basic and just talk for a little bit about um, what atonement means. You know, we it's a, it's a big $5 theological word um, that gets thrown a lot, but, but what does it actually mean? What does atonement mean? Well, when, when we use the word atonement, it comes, I mean, at one or at one meant, which originally meant something along the lines of, <clears throat> excuse me, like a reconciliation or, I mean, you to put it a little more hebraically, like shalom or something like that, there's a lack of conflict and you know, kind of un- there's kind of a unity element to it. And so, I mean, there's lots of different little ways of communicating it, but I mean, at the heart of it, it's there's there's a lack of, of hostility. And in theology, it's kind of shorthand, I think, for the work of the cross, of course. Um, there's a huge debate on what that means, as, as you and I both know, just a cursory glance at any sort of topic or systematic theology. Uh, you see that there are mil- thousands of questions involved in that, but I think, generally speaking, it speaks to an aspect or a state of being that uh, is at one without conflict or hostility or enmity. That's good. 
Um, I remember hearing growing up, preachers would say, you know, they're talking about atonement, and they would say, that's at one meant. And I thought it was just one of those, like, silly preacher things that they were sort of making up as a play on <laughs> words. But um, when I looked up the etymology of the word, that's literally where it comes from in English. They just took the word at and one and put it together into the word atone, and that's what it meant. It was reconciliation to bring things that were two, that were separate, and to set them at one. Um, so it wasn't just a, a silly preacher play on words, but that's literally what, what the word means in English. Um, but like you said, in theology, it's uh, atonement has come to be shorthand word that carries a lot of meaning um, in terms of the, the work of the cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, the New Testament is pretty clear that there's a connection between uh, the death of Jesus and our forgiveness, our salvation, our reconciliation with God. Um, and that whole package is sort of wrapped up in the, the shorthand word, um, the atonement. So that there's a connection is is pretty clear in Scripture. Right. And there's also, uh, I mean, not to get too much into the weeds, uh, we'll, we'll have further episodes on this, um, but there is a, a, a big... Uh, correlation between atonement and salvation, right? The doctrine mm-hmm. of how, I mean, put it crudely, how we're saved and what we're saved from and how God right. saves us and all. And there's, so there's, you know, we, we can say, I mean, I used this analogy uh, earlier, um, but I think it's helpful for us when we do theology is imagine a, a freight train, you know, the kind of trains, I don't know if you have them where you are or where you know, in Indiana, but you've got, you know, 200 cars on a freight train moving like five miles an hour, you know, and uh, at the at the very front, you have the the one engine, and that represents a theological point or an idea or a premise of something. You know, like God is love. You know, um, but the problem is, of course, you have two hundred and forty nine cars behind it, and that sort of freight that comes along with that phrase. And it's one of those things where, in Christian theology, a lot of it is centered on how much theological freight or baggage comes with certain claims or ideas. So when right. we say something like. Uh, Christ died for our sins, you know, um, a lot of people go, oh, there's 200, they don't, I should say, it's assumed that those 250 cars on that freight train um, are all agreed upon and undisputed and all that sort of stuff. And our, I think one of our goals in talking about atonement and starting at the very beginning is to say, if we're going to talk about atonement, we need to do it responsibly in a way that takes into consideration each car on its own purpose and before we begin to just say, well, we all know what wrath means, right? Or what salvation means or forgiveness means, you know? And it's like, well, no, like if we're doing Christ-centered theology, we need to think far more intricately and not miss the forest for the trees. And I think you and I have done a really good job at least kind of framing or modeling a way that kind of gets us to go back to the text without kind of being like, oh, well, we can assume that for the sake of argument. You know what I mean? It's I don't think we're given that luxury if we're going to be responsible theologians. Correct. Yeah, there's a, there's a, within these common words that we all use, common phrases, uh, they can mean lots of different things to different people. So we got to make sure we unpack that, which is what we're going to try to do uh, in this series. Um, when we talk about atonement, you know, it, nobody nobody denies that in Scripture there is some connection between the death of Jesus, Jesus' work on the cross, and our forgiveness and our salvation. Where the debate comes in is how, how Jesus' death uh, is connected to our forgiveness, our, our reconciliation, our salvation. Um, or to say it another way, what is the mechanism by which Jesus' death accomplishes those things for us? Uh, and so this question of how, how it works, which is less clear 
uh, in the scripture, I think, as we'll see as we go throughout the series, has led to the development of what we call atonement theories. Atonement theories. A theory is um, a, a an explanation. Um, somebody tries to explain, based on the available evidence, how this thing happens. So they people look at the Bible, um, and they have their theological background and their paradigms, and then they say, well, here's how we think the death of Jesus accomplished salvation for us. Um, and if you think that that's just a silly question, and of course we know how that happens, well, then maybe the series is for you. <laughs> um, yeah. But so these these atonement theories, as you may hear them referred to, they're attempts to explain that connection or to define the mechanism by which the death of Jesus accomplishes our salvation, our reconciliation, and our forgiveness. Right. And, and to be clear on the use of mechanism, um, there's something to be said that not every atonement theory as developed throughout church history, and there's a lot of atonement theories, um, not every atonement theory is as concerned with mechanism as we are in the modern West, right? Um, there are, and, and that's where a lot of debate comes in from certain atonement theories is they're very concerned about mechanics, how this works. Whereas I think, um, and this is nothing, this is not a slide against anyone. This is just kind of me, me processing. Um, I think what Thomas said is correct is we're more, I think a, be, a better way of saying it is maybe we are as modern Westerners, at least from the context that I'm speaking in, you know, uh, Protestants, you know, generally broadly evangelical, we are more concerned with mechanics and the how of atonement versus what they talked about in the first century. And I think that'll come up far more closely when we get into uh, the paradigms and into the deeper into the weeds with these atonement theories, and that's something for us to keep in mind too. Is um, the questions we ask, right? What kind mm -hmm. of questions do we bring to the text, um, and how does our current cultural climate, with its legal system, with its politics, with the, all the things we take for granted, and those things could be true, they could be sort of true, they could be completely false, but what it means is we need to be very, very aware of what kind of questions we ask, because that will determine what kind of things we find uh, in the text. And that's not, I'm not making a subjective claim, like you'll find whatever you want. You can go, you know, context doesn't matter. But you and I both know, Tom, right. it's like history matters to to our faith. It's it's one of those, it's a bedrock thing, you know. And there's many interpretations of these things, and that's completely fine. But we need to be far more aware of our own questions. And if these questions are governed by the text or arise from the text versus um, I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I think yeah. asking, I, we need to be aware of the questions we're asking and be a little more reflective. And that means you and me both, of course, I'm not excluding us from that at all. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so as we, as we look at these various theories, um, we're going to, those are the questions we're going to ask. How well supported are they actually in the text itself? You know, mm -hmm. what, are, what baggage, what assumptions do these particular theories bring to the text? Uh, what is taken from the text and what is read into the text based on other assumptions we have, maybe from other places in the text, um, as well as, you know, how do they fit with the God revealed by Jesus during his life and ministry, which we just spent a bunch of episodes over the last year and some change talking about looking at Jesus's own life and teaching. Uh, we'll compare these different theories with that and see how well they line up with what Jesus reveals about God in other places. 
because um, that's I think it's important in terms of our theological consistency. Uh, and then what are the theological and practical implications of each of these theories? Because um, theology doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? What we believe about God and how God works works its way out into our practical life, our relationships with one another. Um, and whether we know it or not, the you know the way that we think about God and how God works. Um, is probably going to affect the way that we relate with one another. So we'll try to dive into some of those questions. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Well, no, and it's. I think you made a really, how well supported are these theories in the biblical text, right? And I think for a lot of folks, it's very obvious, and I'm not saying that, again, as a slight, but for a lot of people, it's just obvious that a certain phrase or a certain word means a certain thing. And I think we'll see when it comes to atonement theory and theology and asking questions about the text, um, we'll begin to kind of, I, I think, come away with a more robustly biblical idea, not in the sense of like, you know, a trademark hashtag biblical, but more a sense of what does the text, or rather, what does the text say and how does it determine the questions we ask? So if we come to the text, right, you and I come to the text and it says, um, I don't know, uh, Christ died for our sins. If our first thought is, ah, he died for our sins to, um, I don't know, um, uh, remove our existential guilt and shame. Uh, we, we would look at that, for example, and be like, well, that's not in the text. That doesn't seem to be what the author was implying. What maybe? What does that tell us about what we bring, right? And all that sort of stuff. And it's a way of, I think, reframing the debate around what the text actually says versus what we've traditionally kind of assumed that every text must teach. And you don't need a Bible verse for something to be true. But, you know, if we're going to do constructive theology based on a text, we need to allow the text to have and speak its full force without us kind of already uh, bringing a formula to a text and therefore finding anything we want based on that formula. And it's kind of a way of maybe we need a better formula. Right. Right. Uh, and this is such a big topic. Uh, and there are so many different uh, theories of atonement um, that are, some of them are similar to each other and some of them are very, very different from each other. Um, and so it sort of raises the question, where do we start to, to do this? Um, do we just, you know, read verse by verse of the New Testament? Um, that would take a long time. Uh, so I think I think a good place to start. I think um, the the theologian Gustav Aulen uh, actually offers a fairly helpful framework um, for organizing the various atonement theories um, that are out there within different subcategories or paradigms, as they're called. And he does this in his book uh, Christus Victor, uh, sort of a landmark book on the atonement um, from. Uh, the 20th century uh, is still pretty popular today. Um, and, and within that book, um, he takes these various atonement theories and he, he sorts them into, um, he explains they can sort of be sorted into one of three different subgroups. He calls these subgroups the classic is the first one, the classic uh, paradigm. The second one is either the Latin or the objective paradigm. Um, and the third one is the subjective paradigm, classic, objective, and subjective. Um, and within those three sort of subgroups, we can sort the other individual theories into them. Um, and then there's a great book out there um, uh, called The Nature of the Atonement, Four Views. It's uh, edited by Paul, Eddy, and James uh, Bileby, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and they have uh, four different theologians uh, and scholars write about a particular atonement theory, and then they critique each other. But in the introduction to that book, they um, they take Owlin's 
categories, his, his, his subgroups, um, and he explains how they sort of work. So here's, here's what they say in the introduction to uh, the nature of the atonement for views. They say, in essence, each of these paradigms, these three subgroups, focuses the primary emphasis of the atonement in a different direction. That is, each paradigm sees the natural thrust of the work of Christ as designed to address a different fundamental problem that stands in the way of salvation. In other words, they take all the different uh, theories out there and they group them together based on the direction in which atonement works, and we'll explain that a little bit later, as well as they group them together by the, the fundamental problem with which each theory attempts to solve um, in terms of the mechanism so to speak, of the way salvation works. So hopefully that will become more clear as we start to explain uh, those subgroups here in a few minutes. Yeah, and, and maybe uh, an image for people to kind of help uh, kind of see this. It's as if the death of Christ is a diamond, right? You hold up a diamond in the light and you shine multiple lights through it and you cast all these different kind of images and colors and shapes, you know, and, and reflections and all that. And each one of those is kind of its own uh, atonement theory. And so it's like everything kind of you know, are, we're granting every you know atonement theory a a, 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 a sort of a prima facie um, legitimacy. You know, um, just you know for the sake of argument, each atonement theory emanates, uh, or at least as it is argued that it does, from that diamond, right? That that sh- that um, that light cast from that diamond, that radiance, can ultimately find its source in the atonement. And I think a lot of people, and I think that might help, kind of get an image of this they're basically saying the directional the different directions the different images are different ways of conceptualizing or thinking about what that diamond is saying or rather the the the, the shape that diamond is shedding does that make sense yes yeah absolutely i think that's a, that's a good way to explain okay because it, it's a way you know we don't want to just say oh yeah each atomic theory is equally valid i mean we, i i will for the sake of argument but it's a way of saying there are different directions and different ideas and different shapes that can emanate from this and that gives us i think uh, a, a more broad view of atonement at least from the outset so that, uh, we can at least be a little more fair with at least the ideas that are at least the the the, the integrity of the person that argues for t- specific direction so yeah um and now uh, we kind of want to state from the start of all this that these various theories and subgroups are, of course, not mutually exclusive, at least necessarily. Um, one of the reasons there has been such debate is because there's biblical evidence for more than one quote-unquote theory or idea, right? I mean, there's so much in Scripture that speaks to different things, either through inference or through uh, explicit uh, means uh, the Bible uses a lots of different language and images and metaphors to describe the work of Christ. Um, and usually um, that work of Christ is described in terms of the death of Christ, right? And uh, I think for us, what we're trying to do is to say the death of Christ is a huge, huge part of it, but it's not the only part of it, um, of, of what atonement may mean or how we can construct an atonement. We don't want to forget the life of Christ because we have four Gospels and uh, a lot of material of what Jesus did before he died and was raised from the dead. So um, a lot of the debate is usually centered about which theory is primary or central. Uh, right. And so we're kind of looking for, we have that one diamond, the atonement diamond, but we're looking for one kind of lens to kind of go around it that at least begins to help bring everything else into conformity. Every color, every shape, every every um, reflection is brought into conformity with that lens, right? And for example... Um, 
in that four views book that uh, that Thomas mentioned, um, the nature of the atonement. Tom Schreiner is a reformed New Testament scholar, and he argues, I, I think, rather strongly. Uh, I wouldn't say convincingly, but he strongly that quote penal substitution, and that is one atonement theory that's very very popular in reformed and evangelical circles. Uh, and we'll explain what that means when we come to it. But just the X, this theory of atonement functions as the anchor and foundation for all other dimensions of the atonement when the scriptures are considered as a canonical whole. And he says that on in that book on page, I believe it's 67. And for a lot of theologians and Christians, this particular atonement theory or this way of conceptualizing is essentially at the heart of the gospel. What a lot of people are looking for is one atonement theory as kind of a primary lens around the diamond. And I don't know what you think about that, Thomas, but I find that to be uh, an unhelpful way of at least formulating formulating, uh, the disparate and unique and contextual factors that go into the New Testament documents as they relate to atonement. I don't know what you think about that. I just don't find... I find the formulization of a lot of initial atonement theories to be just kind of more front-loaded, or as we as as the metaphor I used, bringing a lot of freight into the uh, into the train station. Uh, at least that's unjustified. I mean, I could be wrong in that. It could be just me being me. I, I you know. But what do, what do you think? Do you think do you think there's something to that, or am I completely wrong? Because it's okay if I'm wrong. I've been wrong once or twice in my life. Well, I, I think you're right that in in a lot of these circles, a certain certain theory of atonement um, is equated to the level of the gospel. And if you don't believe uh, or, or center this particular theory of atonement, then you've somehow missed the gospel. Uh, and that's a, that's a pretty strong claim. Um, and I think we'll get into that as we go. Um, is do you have to believe a certain theory is a certain theory um, synonymous with the actual message of the gospel itself? Right. Um, you know, and, We'll, we'll be open to that as we go, but as we, you know, from the study that I've done so far, uh, I think that's a, I think that statement um, doesn't carry the, it's not strong enough to carry the weight that it claims. Um, there's a, there's a better cliche for that that I don't know. <laughs> I forget what it is right now. Um, oh, yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. I, I think it's, um, I think it's writing a bigger check than it than it can cash. That's the cliche I'm looking yeah. for. And, um, and there's nothing necessarily wrong uh, with wanting a, a lens by which you can view everything else. I think that kind of, I mean, I, I would object to it in the sense of I, I I don't know why we need that per se. But I'm not opposed to the idea of here is a guiding paradigm by which we can view everything else. I'm not. Like my, my gut instinct is like, okay, let's, my first instinct is not that's wrong, but okay, let's test that. Does that actually account for all of the evidence in a satisfactory way? And I think that's where a lot of people kind of go wrong is kind of trying to force all of the data into or within this certain paradigm. And I think it's just better to maybe have either an expanded paradigm or just a completely different paradigm that can account for different bits of the data. I don't, that's, I think a debate you and I'll have, well, not with each other per se, but as we kind of move along through these different atonement theories. Correct. Correct. And it can be, even if there's truth to the theory, if we strap it with more weight than it can handle, it ends up becoming an error in that way. Um, so we'll, we'll examine those questions as we get into each particular theory in the next few episodes. Um, but in this episode, we're going to, we're going to start by taking a look at each of the three subgroups or those paradigms that we um, looked at earlier. Um, and so we'll, we'll start by summarizing uh, each 
each of the, the subgroups that the various ones fall into. We'll give a couple of examples of theories that would fall within that subgroup. But we'll do this, we'll summarize this um, by highlighting the direction of the atonement and the fundamental problem that the theories within that subgroup are trying to address. Um, that's the way that these are sort of sorted together. So the first one that um, Aulin and others talk about is this, uh, what they call the classic paradigm or the Christus Victor paradigm. Uh, comes from the name of that book. Um, Christus Victor is a Latin phrase that means Christ the victor or Christ the conqueror. Uh, and so as Eddie and Balbi explain in the introduction to the uh, Nature of the Atonement book, uh, they say this paradigm, the classic paradigm, can be described as Satan word in its focus. Uh, in other words, the, the direction of the action the, is towards Satan. And that will become clear. Uh, and they go on to say that this paradigm understands the work of Christ primarily in terms of his conflict with and triumph over those elements of the kingdom of darkness that, according to the New Testament, hold humanity in their clutches, end quote. Um, so according to the classic paradigm of the atonement, the, the action, the direction is from Christ towards Satan, and it emphasizes Satan's um, victory over the forces of evil. Um, in other words, uh, in this category uh, of texts, are often they often emphasize the victory of God in Christ over sin and evil and death. Um, and so we'll see when we take a closer look at this paradigm in the next episode. Um, this was the predominant view of the early church. When we talk about the church fathers, the patristics, the patristics um, this Christus Victor view, the Satan word focus of the atonement was the predominant view um, of the early church. And one of the major theories within this classic paradigm is what's called the ransom theory of atonement, the ransom theory of atonement. Uh, and this theory postulates that human beings uh, are enslaved under the oppressive power of sin and death and the devil, uh, what we might call the unholy trinity, um, and humans are in need of liberation from their um, slavery to sin and death and the devil. Uh, and so what God does in Christ is present Jesus as the, the price of release or the price of manumission, the ransom to the devil in order to purchase us out of our slavery. Um, it is the, the price of being set free. And we'll get into the biblical precedent for that in the next episode. Um, but basically in doing so, um, when you read the church fathers, the, the devil is sort of tricked into killing an innocent man. Um, and by doing that ends up becoming defeated by Christ's resurrection and exaltation. Uh, and so this view places a very high premium on the reality of evil in the world and the cosmic battle between God and Satan. Yeah, and it's a very, uh, well, it's it's a very big, almost apocalyptic view, which is kind of cool. It's they're, they're very interesting thinkers early on, and I think we have that. Anyway, I won't get into my thoughts on that theory. But yes, uh, another theory that is sort of within the classic paradigm, and this is a, a lesser known theory, but it has a lot of historical precedent, is called the recapitulation theory. The recapitulation theory. And it was held by Irenaeus and Justin Martyr, some of our earliest church fathers and Christian thinkers. And it essentially argues that Christ as the last Adam uh, comes, comes into the world to undo the damage done by the first Adam and Eve. Uh, in essence, Christ sums up all things in himself, kind of seizing them away from the Adamic realm. So it kind of doesn't have the, the ransom payment idea or the manumission or slavery motif, per se. Um, it's more concerned with uh, kind of 
Christ coming to return us back to the Edenic realm, the the, the new creation, the new Jerusalem, the, the way God originally intended. And kind of the famous phrase that is used in the early fathers in various ways is, is the phrase, if the word has become flesh or been made human, it is so that humanity may be made into God or into God-likeness. And it's kind of this idea of uh, Christ came to be what we are, human, flesh, and all that sort of stuff, in order that we might be transformed into who he was, right? So there's a big view of deification and participation and being uh, kind of trans. as you know, we see the language of being transformed into the image of Christ and those sorts of ideas. And Athanasius uh, and numerous early church fathers use that sort of language to kind of uh, explain how Christ came to restore the original image of God that we are, which has been blemished by sin and death and all that sort of stuff, to its rightful place. And so it's more of a big picture thing. It's not as concerned with, like, say, the ransom theory. Uh, ransom theory is a little more specific, but the recapitulation kind of implies this notion of representation on the part of Christ, that Christ represents not only Adam, but every single human person when he goes to the cross. Um and that includes the reversal of Adam's sin through the victory of God. So it's a very big picture cosmic view, uh, which is compatible. A lot of these two views uh, uh, are very compatible with kind of Christus Victor ideas. And all three views, I think, and this is debated, but I, I don't think it's particularly controversial. They affirm the notion of, we might say, a libertarian free will view or a participationist free, free will view of the God-human relationship, where both parties are active in... And we might say synergistically, uh, working against sin and evil and death and the devil in and in the world. And it both views place a very high, as Thomas said, a very high premium on the active and independent and corrosive nature of sin and death and evil in the world. And those are things that are working, we might say, in rebellion against God as powers, right? You almost might call them as rival empires fighting against the one true and holy King Jesus. And Christ is the one as king who comes to basically sum up all things in himself and bring us all back into true conformity into the image of God that we were created to be. So it's a very big picture view. Um, uh, it's not as New Testament centric, uh, but the early fathers doing biblical theology, uh, kind of the big picture reading of scripture, very much affirm this sort of view. Yes, Um and so this, this classic view, again, to summarize, is uh, it's Satan word in focus. The, the direction of the action is towards Satan, Jesus. The, the problem that's being solved is our bondage to um, the devil, to sin, the, the, to the kingdom of darkness, and Jesus setting us free in cosmic battle. So that's the classic view. Uh, the second paradigm is the objective view, or the Latin view. Um, and so it shifts the direction of the action as well as the fundamental problem. Um, so here's how Eddie and Balby explain it uh, in their introduction to the nature of the atonement. They say, uh, a central characteristic of any objective model of the atonement will be its Godward focus. That is, an objective theory of the atonement understands the work of Christ primarily as addressing a demand of God, end quote. Um, so usually this is discussed in terms of the way uh, that sin is an offense against God and must be addressed in order to satisfy some need of God's, uh, God's need for wrath or God's need for justice or God's need um, to have his to have God's honor restored. So the difference between objective and classic is that in classic, the direction is 
uh, towards Satan, um, and in, in objective, the direction is towards towards God, so up and down, so to speak. So uh, one of the first theories, uh, one of the primary theories within the objective paradigm is the satisfaction view uh, that was pioneered by St. Anselm. Um, and in that, in that view, uh, Christ's death satisfies the dishonor that was wrought by humanity against God through sin. And so Christ then comes and satisfies that honor through his obedience and atoning death. So instead of the primary focus being defeating the powers of Satan, the primary focus is on um, completing, paying the, the honor debt, so to speak, that humanity had um, uh, racked up by sin against God. Yeah, and, and we can see maybe a little bit of overlap already between that and the ransom theory, because the ransom theory does have, we might say, a an economic model or an economic mechanism to it. Of course, the difference is, um, and it's a huge difference, and we'll get into this, uh, but the difference is the debt is paid to Satan in the ransom view, or we'll say mm -hmm. Satan as a shorthand for the powers of sin, death, and evil, um, and all that sort of stuff. The debt is paid to Satan, um, whereas in the satisfaction model, the debt payment is to God. And that's not to right. say that's the only overlap, but it's it's a way of kind of reconfiguring and saying there's here's kind of a theme that is, is mentioned just to maybe help people at least begin to see how these these atonement theories are comp complex and how they maybe interact with each other on little bits of here and there. Um, uh, a second kind of related theory, um, this one's a, a much later one, at least in terms of when it's fully formed. Um, is one we've kind of already alluded to uh, as Tom Schreiner's, uh, as uh, what Tom Schreiner argued, and that is the penal substitutionary theory of atonement. And this one is argued by most reformational theologians and thinkers, not just Calvinists. I mean, most, I would say, Thomas, I don't know if you would agree with this, most, most Christians in the West uh, are at least uh, within that kind of sphere, whether implicitly or rather unintentionally as in terms of inheriting a view. And there's nothing mm -hmm. wrong with inheriting a view, of course. It's it's just normal. Um, and also, it seems to be kind of the the primary, or at least the one model that gets most emphasized. I don't know if that's true for you, but that's the one I generally see most prominently. Yes, I would agree. I'd say it's, it's probably, uh, penal substitution is probably the default in most of American evangelicalism. Okay. Yeah, I think that I think that's fair. And that doesn't mean it's right or wrong or true or half true or anything like that. That's just it's in terms of historical precedent, meaning from the 16th century on, that's it's just the dominant view. And the view um, generally stated is that Christ pays the penalty or bears the wrath of God or bears the punishments of God. Um, and there's numerous ways of configuring that um, bears that thing bear of our sin by suffering and dying in our place so that we might be set free. Um, and uh, J.I. Packer, a, a noted Reformed theologian, notes, and I'm quoting him, so, quote, Jesus Christ, our Lord, moved by a love that was determined to do everything necessary to save us, endured and exhausted the destructive divine judgment for which we were otherwise in inescapably destined, and so won us forgiveness, adoption, and glory. And that's uh, from, I believe, his book or his article, uh, or the source is, What Did the Cross Achieve? And I believe that's from 1974 on page 25. And uh, maybe a, a way of, I don't know, uh, of popularly, a popular example of this kind of idea is found in the famous song, In Christ Alone, right? Um, at the cross where Jesus died. Are you going to sing it? No, I will not sing it. I, I, there's a reason I'm not the worship pastor at my church. <laughs> uh, it's at the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And that's kind of, 
in a nutshell, I mean, there's obvious texts that are biblical texts that are appealed to in support of this, but um, the wrath of God was satisfied in the divine judgment of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so, in an essence, you have the God, the relationship being objective in terms of being Godward, but you have Jesus Christ bearing the whatever we want to call it. And there's obviously debates within PSA circles about, you know, how, what Christ bore in our place. Uh, but what we can say is that it is fundamentally a legal or um, judicial kind of mm-hmm. metaphor that Christ bears um, our sin uh, and our punishment and, uh, and God's wrath and all those sorts of things that are directed toward us by God. And basically, to use a metaphor, drinks the cup of God's wrath that we were meant to drink. Yes. So that we don't have to. And I don't think that's a prejudicial way of saying it. That's how I've heard it preached and talked about. And I think Packer's quote um, is is illustrative. And I don't know if this is true for you, Thomas, but I think he actually hits it on the head because he emphasizes the destructive divine judgment for which we are otherwise inescapably destined. And I think the key word there is divine. And so this question basically brings up a whole host of questions about the Trinity and about all those sorts of things. And I don't know if we want to discuss that, but that's kind of the idea of PSA is that God, or rather Christ inadvertently, or rather I should say inadvertently, intentionally um, bore the destructive divine judgment of God for our sake. Hence yes. penal, hence substitution, hence atonement. Yes. In other words, that, that God's justice demands <clears throat> that sin be punished, uh, that sin is be punished. And so in order to satisfy God's demands for justice, Jesus stepped in and took the punishment that we deserved uh, freeing God up to to, to forgive us um, is again I, that might be um, shorthand but I, I don't think that's a prejudicial way of um, summarizing that in, in one sentence and uh, we, we just sure. need to acknowledge that within PSA circles um, uh, there is a lot of ways of explaining it and there's a lot of ways of configuring it and so Correct. Um, we're, we're giving a, a this whole paradigm is basically this is a broad way of conceptualizing it and i think we i don't we i mean if it doesn't sound right to you or you would nuance it a different way that's completely fine i i have no problem admitting that it is a generic generic way of uh, constructing it Um, but i think packer is fairly representative of a clear and lucid thinker and i think he's very clear and lucid in what he's arguing and i think that's generally speaking what psa is and i think um that is something we'll have to look and see what the bible says yes yep Exactly. Um, so the the first one, the classic, uh, is is directed towards Satan. The fundamental problem that it seeks to address is humanity's um, slavery to sin and death and the devil in a cosmic battle between um, God and evil. And the the force is Jesus rescuing us from the powers of evil. Uh, the second one, the objective, the the direction is Godward. The fundamental problem that it seeks to address is the the debt that is owed to God through sin. Um, that it's God's um, demands for justice um, and wrath that need to be satisfied, and, and that's the fundamental problem. Um, and so the third one that we get into now is the subjective paradigm, the subjective paradigm. And so Eddie and Bobby explain it this way. They say, quote, the subjective trajectory, <clears throat> say that three times fast, the subjective trajectory of atonement theories are held together by the common conviction that the primary focus of the atonement is humanward. That is, the atoning work of Christ is designed first and foremost to affect a change in human beings. Um, so the, the direction is towards human. The fundamental problem is that uh, we we need to be changed internally um, to to live a different way. 
um, so to speak. This one gets a little bit more complicated. Right, right. But I and, think you have a, an example yeah, of that. Yeah, and um, we, we think of the uh, the moral influence of the atonement. And this one's a, a predate, it's probably around the time of Anselm's satisfaction theory. So we might think of them as competing ideas, even if implicitly. Um, and the idea of this atonement theory, um, which encompasses a whole host of other kind of ideas or subsidiary craters of atonement ideas, but I think the moral influence is kind of the big picture one of this objective paradigm. And it is, it argues that um, the idea that human beings have become wayward children, in essence, and Christ's life and death and resurrection are meant to kind of display to us how God desires us to live, right? In essence, you have Christ's life as a model of what God demands of us to be in right relationship with him. And in essence, the, the life and atoning death of Christ gives us that new paradigm of how we might live. So it's very much concerned with Christian ethics, um, the Christian life. And uh, you have other issues of healing and exorcisms that we find in, in the Gospels that are kind of included in this theory. And so it's a way of kind of uh, mo- Christ's death and life is a way of modeling for us or, or showing us, in, to use Ephesians 5, uh, one and two language of what how to imitate Christ, right? It's it's Christocentric imitation, and so um, it's a very ex- I wouldn't say existential. That's not the right way. It's a very subjective way of configuring the Christian life. It's a new way of thinking. So it, it, you might say it's very much centered on transformation and spiritual formation and all that sort of stuff. So it's not as heavy on the death of Christ per se, although um, they do of course take that into account. Um, but that's kind of the general idea of that atonement theory. And, right, yeah, sort of yeah. where the, in a lot of those, the death of Christ becomes the the inevitable um, end to a life that's lived according to the, to the will of God, that if you live this way, it sort of reveals the evil of the world and shows us what happens, how, how evil the world is through the goodness uh, of the life of Christ. Yeah. Um, so the the death isn't necessarily the the primary focus, but the inevitable results of a life lived in obedience to God. Yeah, and, and to give maybe another example, one thinks of the nonviolent uh, legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, right? Um, uh, we in his, uh, I mean, I, I don't know what else to call it, the evil way that he uh, was forced to live in subjection and in violence and in horrific racism in our very recent past. Um, and we see that, of course, playing out today. But the nonviolent uh, activism, the nonviolent way of life, highlighted how evil, uh, and I'm being very intentional with my words here, for me to call something evil or sinful is literally the worst thing I can call it, um, highlighting for, basically highlighting how evil and sinful racism was in our recent past here, at least in the United States, and thus uh, basically throwing gasoline on the fire of sin and basically burning it so bright that eventually it began to burn out. And that's not to say we have crossed uh, the Rubicon on that at all, but it is to say um, many of us are now aware of how evil and sinful this sort of uh, prejudice and racism and, and, and uh, all that sort of stuff is by means of that, uh, that life lived in courage uh, for the sake of nonviolence in the kingdom of God and stuff like that. So it's a way of living that exemplifies uh, true uh, true holiness, true character, and by being the light in the darkness, we see the light for what it is, and we see the darkness for what it is as well. Yep, that's a, that's a great way to explain it. Yeah. 
And I think for us, and, and kind of a way of bringing all of this together with those three paradigms, um, we can see that there are there are a lot of intricacies and issues to the conversation, right? There's um, just so much to be said, and there's so many subsidiary questions, you know, how does this relate to the Trinity? How does this relate to all these sorts of things? Um, and so we'll be moving kind of slowly through this process and this time. And I think our goal in this is twofold. And I think this flows nicely from our study on the parables of Jesus, right? And what they reveal about God. And our goal, I think, in light of that, in light of the parables and the witness of Jesus Christ, uh, is to ask and try to present a truly Christ-centered theology of the cross. Right. Not being so focused on answering every single question that we have in modern times, you know, not answering all the freight, the entire freight train, but allowing the train, to use the metaphor or the diamond, to dictate how we think, right? And so it's a way of kind of moving Christ and his life, his life, his life, and his death and resurrection back to the center of what it means to talk about atonement theories. And I don't know, for me, and I know for you, we want to be led by the New Testament and not by our own paradigms. And I think that's something we need to say from the outset, because um, I notice a lot of people basically, you know, we ask the question of atonement theory, and the first thought is, well, Christ died for my sins, so I don't have to go to hell. And I've actually had people <laughs> say that. And that may be true on some level, like I'm not saying that's an utterly <laughs> false idea. But it is to say, maybe we need to go back, you know, ad fontes to the source, to our scriptures and say, maybe we need to allow the text to tell us how to think versus just being inheritors of, of the theological tradition. That doesn't mean the tradition's wrong, Thomas. Like you and I both agree, like it's not as if the tradition's wrong per se, or at least on the face of it. But it does mean if, you know, we're going to be truly uh, Christ-centered that we go back to the sources that concern us with Christ and we start there versus just kind of going, well, we all know what this means. It's like, well, do we? Right, right. And recognizing... Two, two sides of this, right? That every one of these theories has some scriptural support, right? People don't, didn't just make these up willy-nilly. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, there is scriptural support, but there's a difference between having a, a, a preconceived paradigm and finding uh, verses that support that, whether they fit in the context or not, or whether that's the best reading of scriptures, and then finding what is the actual, what is the text, what is the story the text is telling um, within context. And so we've got to be careful, all of us, uh, that's not to say that we don't have our own biases or ideas, um, but it does mean that we, we do need to be, um, as if you'll forgive the pun, uh, as objective <laughs> as possible uh, when we interpret scripture together, that we're not just taking what we think must be true and finding scripture to support that, but that we're taking the actual story that scripture is telling, not just in the New Testament, but as we'll see later on, you know, from beginning to end, um, uh, and not just taking a few isolated texts. Uh, a lot of a lot of atonement comes from, uh, you know, a few isolated texts in Paul and, and some interpretations of Isaiah 53. Uh, and then we take those texts and we form an atonement. We don't really pay much attention at all to what Jesus himself said or um, how the community lived or, or anything like that. Um, and we, we hang on to those at every turn. So we've got we've to be more, um, I'm hesitant to use this term because of how it gets uh, Misuse. We've got to be more more biblical and more christological in our method. Um, in other words, we have to we have to figure out how to construct a, a holistic vision of Christian theology and a holistic vision of the atonement for our daily lives, recognizing all the while that uh, our theories of atonement do have 
um, practical outworkings, right? Mm-hmm. There, there are practical ramifications uh, for what we believe about God and the way that God works. Um, and so we've got to keep all of that in mind as we, as we address um, and explore these various theories. Right. And, and at the heart of it, too, we're asking the question, like dozens and dozens of questions implicitly. And I think a lot of them will kind of come out. I mean, you'll probably have questions we don't even think of, you know, our listeners. I mean, we're asking questions about the goodness and the character of God revealed in Jesus Christ. That's, that's not a, a secondary question for us. I mean, we're asking questions about how about God's justice and God's holiness and God's love and how God deals with sin and evil and death and the devil and all these sorts of things. This is a huge topic that can't be just distilled down into a bite-sized proof text that just gives us exactly what we not we want. It's it's rather all of these questions that we have will inevitably impact other questions that we ask, and they'll just give new source and new life to things we didn't even think about. I mean, how many of us think about the devil when we talk about atonement theory? How many of us think about uh, evil right. and and all that sort of stuff when we think about atonement theories? We we don't. We or at least we generally don't. We think about our, our or at least to put it crudely, my sin. You know, we think right. about how God right. God deals with my sin, and that's not to say God doesn't deal with my sin, but it is to say there are so many bigger questions than that that we need to properly allow Scripture to basically speak and and allow the questions that we ask to be formulated by the witness of the spirit and the witness of what scripture actually seems to communicate. And if, and if, and if, if that is wrong, then, or we get, we come up short on something, then by all means, at least we'll be, we'll at least be on the right track. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, so there's a, there's a lot to this. Um, there's a lot of debate about this. Uh, lots of facets to this. It's, it's a massive topic, like we said. So we're going to, we're going to do our best. Um, so in the, uh, Next episode, our, our goal is to explore the, the theories within this first paradigm, um, this, this classic paradigm or this Christus Victor paradigm, to look at the scriptural support for it, um, the, the assumptions that it, that it works with, that it brings, that, it, that, that are, are present in that, um, to look at the, you know, the pros and the cons, of the, the ramifications of, of that. Um, so we're going to dive into that in the, in the next episode. Um, and so we're going to... Uh, start talking about that in particular, and then we'll move into the next paradigm, and, and we'll just try to do our best to to give each of these um, as honest and objective a look as possible, and see how they fit in. Uh, so, if you like what we're doing um, and you want to support us, you can find us on. Don't you do it? <laughs> uh, pa- Patreon. Right. There you go. Right. Yeah, Patreon. All right, good. I had to think about it. He, he, um, he, it's named after a general in the military. I feel like you should know this. General Petraeus. <laughs> like, come on. Oh, there we go. Um, so if you do want to support us, uh, that, that's probably the best way to do it. Uh, if you if you have a few bucks to spare, we obviously know that the times are tough right now um, with, uh, with COVID and the lockdown and all of that. So certainly no obligation, um, no pressure. We should make sure you're taking care of your families and your communities first. But if you have um, a few extra bucks to spare, you want to throw in to help us cover the costs of producing this content. Um, we would sure love that. A special thank you to those of you who are already patrons and who have been faithful supporters of us. We know that we've not been putting out as much content as we would like with lots of changes um, in our personal lives as well as in the uh, society right now. Things are all up in the air. So those of you who have stuck with us, we are just incredibly grateful um, for you and, and we're just so blessed by you. Thank you for your continued support. 
Amen. Well, thank you for listening to the Synergist podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's divine, foreordained, deterministic, gospel-centered, T4G, TGC-approved <laughs> decree. I had to get all of them there, otherwise, you know, we're just not doing Christian theology right. You know, a gospel-centered cheers to all. Amen. <laughs>